Good morning. I can't tell you how great it is to get that mask off. And to be here in the cathedral at home with my Christian sisters. What a treat for me to be here. So let's get on with Judith, warrior for God. The book of Judith does not appear in the original Hebrew Bible, but it is in the Greek and the Hebrew Septuagint, the Greek Bible. It is the work of an unknown author and is thought to be written about the time of the Maccabean Wars. There is confusion as to the real Judith as her name means Jewish. Catholic scholars believe she was an actual person and a national hero. Some of Judith's words connect us with Mary in the Gospel of Luke. The fathers of the earliest times accepted Judith among the canonical books. Paul refers to her in the New Testament. Personally, I believe Judith can speak to us today in our national dilemma, political circumstances, and our personal growth and faith. The heroic theme was intended to recall and celebrate recent victories of the Maccabees and to inspire further resistance to their enemies. Their national identity and being chosen by God was encouraged by this story of a devout and beautiful heroine who first beguiled, then beheaded, the Assyrian commander Holofernes. It also emphasizes the efficacy of prayer. The story describes a world at war at that time against the nations that refused to join King Nebuchadnezzar against his enemy, Medea. Nebuchadnezzar sends his general, Holofernes, to punish the nations, all that Israel submits. At this point in the story, Achior, leader of the defeated Ammonites, warns the general that God will defend the Israelites so long as they remain faithful to him. Holofernes, disregarding the warning, surrounds the Israelites in the ancient town Bethulia, in the mountains near Jerusalem. It's important to know that Bethulia is the last stronghold because it occupies the all-important pass through the mountains to Jerusalem. Holofernes surrounds Bethulia and shuts off the water supply. He has his soldiers deliver Achior to the Israelites. Achior fills them in on the strength and determination of the Assyrians and their leader and his plan to cut off the water. The Israelites are imprisoned in their own city. After 34 days, all inhabitants went to Uzziah and the rulers of the city, asking them to surrender. They said, we would rather be slaves than die of thirst. God, the Lord of our forefathers, is punishing us for our sins. Do as we ask this very day. Doesn't this sound like the Israelite slaves grumbling in the desert after leaving Egypt? We would rather be back in Egypt eating their fruit and being their slaves than starved in the desert. The Bethulian leader Uzziah says, Courage. 
Let us wait five days more. That's one day short of 40 days without water. I don't know about you, but two days without water would be put me in a grave. So zip, no water. And how long can they last? Not very long. So we are seeing some supernatural things happening here. Then enters Judith. First, she's introduced by giving her lineage, which includes prophets and priests. It's unusual to give a woman's genealogy, which anticipates she is not an ordinary woman. Her husband died, leaving her wealthy. She is careful to keep the laws prescribed by Moses. Obviously, she was well-respected for the town rulers to listen to her advice. She speaks words right right out of the books of Wisdom and Job, and she quotes Deuteronomy. Who are you that you should put God to the test in five days? You cannot plumb the depths of the human heart or grasp the workings of the human mind. How then can you fathom God and understand his plan? Let us set an example to our kinsmen. Their lives depend on us and the defense of the sanctuary in Jerusalem, the temple and the altar all rest with us. Be grateful that he would put us to the test. It is by way of admonition that he chastises those who are close to him. More on this later. Then Judas said to them, Listen to me. I will do something that will go down from generation to generation among the descendants of our race. She has a plan. Now fast forward to the Gospel of Luke. Mary says, All generations will call me blessed. God had a plan for Mary. After the leaders left, Judith went into deep prayer while the incense was being offered in the temple. Incense denotes the presence of sacrificial prayer to God. Exodus 30, 1-8 says, Throughout your generations you shall establish incense offering before the Lord. So when you see our priest here in the cathedral during Mass, incensing the altar, they are performing an ancient ritual from Exodus 30. Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be like incense before you, my uplifted hands and evening sacrifice. Judith prays to God to allow her to crush the Assyrians who boast of their power and destruction by war weapons. She says, Your strength is not in numbers, nor does your power depend upon stalwart men, but you are the God of the lowly, the helper of the oppressed, the supporter of the weak, the protector of the forsaken, the savior of those without hope. Let your whole nation and all the tribes know that you are God of all power and might, that there is no other who protects the people of Israel but you alone. See how closely this is to what Mary says in Luke. 
His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel his servant, remembering his mercy. Judith means, I would rather obey God than men. In Acts 5, 29, Mary says, May it be done to me according to your word. With her maid she brings wine, which means gladness and strength. She brings oil, which means wealth, anointing, and sanctification. And she brings foods to eat, so that she will not be defiled by eating Assyrian foods. Cunningly, she tells the Assyrian guards, I have come to see General Holofernes, to give him a trustworthy report. I will show him the route by which he can ascend and take possession of the whole mountain district without a single one of his men suffering injury or loss of life. Well, besides her striking beauty, this really gets their attention and brings her to the general. And of course you know that she beguiles him while he thinks he has her cornered. She is allowed to go out at night for prayer. She washes and purifies herself from being in the Assyrian camp. She would be unclean if she could not do this. And she returns to eat her own food, thus not to defile herself. God has provided water for purification, and she provides her own food for sustenance. Smart planning. After three days and much prayer, she moves to execute her plan. Holofernes is waiting to defile her, but in his gluttonous pride, he has consumed too much wine and is drunk. Judith chops off his head. Think about this scene for a minute, and think of Judith. She must have had superhuman strength. The sword must have weighed over 20 pounds. It takes her two blows to sever his head. She grabs his head and hands it to her maid, who drops it into the food pouch. It's usual for the Assyrian guards to see her come and go at night, and so they don't bother her. But they return to Bethulia to celebrate victory. And Alkior, after hearing Holofernes was killed by the cunning wiles of a woman, faints on the spot. When he comes to his senses, he believes firmly in the God of Israel and is converted. Finding the general dead, the Assyrians panic. The word gets out fast, and the neighboring cities and tribes come and help the Israelites slaughter these Assyrians plunder and take all of their gold and possessions. And do these people know how to celebrate? After singing hymns of praise, feasting, dancing, they go to Jerusalem to worship God and perform the purification rites. They present their offerings and gifts. Judith dedicates all the things of Holofernes that were given to her as a votive offering. They stay there three months worshiping and celebrating.
Now let's look again at Judith. She said, Be grateful he should put us to the test. It is by way of admonition that he chastises those who are close to him. Hebrews 12, 6-13 My son, do not disdain the discipline of the Lord, or lose heart when reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God treats you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He does so for our benefit, in order that we may share his holiness. At the time, all discipline seems a cause not for joy, but for pain. Yet later, it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed. We are in a time of healing. In this past presidential election, we hear reports of fraud, manipulation, software glitches, and corruption. Are you going to say, oh well, we've gone through this before? Are you willing to ask instead for a full audit? Do you want to have healing in our voting process? Did you vote for personalities, or did you vote for their platform? Did you know that Catholics are asked to vote for candidates that are pro-life? Respect for life is the preeminent reason to vote for a candidate. Why? Because once a life is aborted, you can't get it back. Environmental problems can be improved with diligence and planning. Immigration can be improved. Taxes can change. But human life, once terminated, cannot be reclaimed. Religious institutions like the Little Sisters of the Poor must not be required to pay for abortions. Judith devised a plan which, it, if it went wrong, she would have been defiled by Holofernes and her people annihilated. She proceeded through the danger ahead with confidence, using deep prayer and knowledge of her faith and strong belief in her maker. And to remember, she had no children, no husband. She alone took her plan in confidence in God's protection and deliverance. Her weapons were her Jewish faith, scripture, and prayer. This is how we grow in confidence today, understanding the tenets of our Catholic faith, scripture, and prayer. A couple of saints come to mind when looking at Judith. Joan of Arc. She was born of a peasant family in 1412. She is considered a heroine of France for her role during the Hundred Years' War to support Charles VII and recover France from English domination. For generations, there have been prophecies in France which promised the nation that would be saved by a virgin who would work miracles. She died at 19. At the age of 13, she saw visions of figures identified as St. Michael, 
St. Catherine, and St. Margaret, who told her to drive out the English and take the Dauphin to Rome for his consecration. At 16, she had a divine revelation to know of the Battle of Rouvray near Orléans before taking place. She persuaded an escort to take her to Charles at the royal court. As she traveled, she wore men's protective clothing disguised as a soldier as a precaution for safety through dangerous countrysides. She made an impression on Charles and out of desperation that every rational option had been exhausted, allowed her to take charge of the country's army and lead it to victory. She was victorious at Orléans and succeeding battles, but eventually captured by the English, put on trial for heresy. Some portions of the transcript were falsified. She was denied appeals. She preferred men's clothing because it protected her from molestation, and the guards left her nothing else to wear. When she asked that her confession be heard, her confessions were leaked outside the confessionals and used against her. There are reports no ashes were left as she was after she was burned at the stake because all remains were thrown into the rivers. Other reports say her heart was left intact. Many years ago, I read Mark Twain's book on Joan of Arc. He was a skeptic and did not believe in organized religion. But after writing about her life, I believe she softened his heart. It seemed to me he fell in love with her courage, her singular dedication, and love of country and God. How about St. Therese of the Child Jesus, the Little Flower? She lived only 24 years. Yes, she's known as her little way, and deep dedication to prayer and good deeds amongst difficulties. She looked for the good in others and went out of her way to be kind to those hardest to love. She is declared a doctor of the church because of her letters and autobiography her spiritual director asked her to write. But did you know that soldiers during World War I reported seeing her in full armor, battling with them on the battlefield? Therese is known for her stubbornness. When she was 14, a religious picture fell from her missile. The picture was an image of the wounded and pierced divine hands. It seemed to Therese that it was as if the precious blood had fallen on the ground without anyone noticing. There and then, she resolved to place herself at the foot of the cross, where she would thirst for the good of souls. She especially desired to snatch sinners from the everlasting flames of hell. She resolved to pray for Henry, or I guess it would be Henri, Pranzini, a man convicted of a brutal triple murder in Paris. She never stopped praying for Mr. Pranzini. Just before his execution, he asked for a crucifix and kissed it three times. Therese knew her prayers had been answered and she was moved all the more to bring souls to Christ. On Christmas Day, she had an emotional healing. Most children by 14 had outgrown the custom of leaving shoes by the hearth for adults to fill them with gifts. But her mother died when she was four, and Therese had been babied 
and the shoes were laid by the hearth. She could hear her father's voice from the parlor below. Standing over the shoes, he sighed. Thank goodness this is the last time we'll have this kind of thing. Therese froze. Her sister thought that she would be in tears and the tantrum would be coming, but it never came. Jesus had come into a heart and had done what she could not do herself. He had made her more sensitive to her father's feelings than her own. In her autobiography, she refers this Christmas as her conversion, conversion to the needs of others. At 16, she entered the Carmelites as a novice. She deliberated over her vocation. She reasoned that love compromised all vocations and that it was eternal. So it all came together for her, and she cried out, Oh, Jesus, my love, I have found it. My vocation is love. Her little way of trusting in Jesus to make her holy and relying on small daily sacrifices instead of great deeds appeals to us today. She died at 24, believing that her life was really just beginning for God, promising, I can do more good while in heaven than on earth. In a particular difficult time, I pray that the Rese Novena, which is 24 glory bees for her years of life, for nine days. On the ninth day, I saw a rose blooming on my patio where I hadn't seen a bloom in a long time. I believe my prayers were answered, and in time, I will see the changes I prayed for. So what does all this mean for you and me? Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God, that you may be able to resist on the evil day, and having done everything to hold your ground, stand with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, isn't this what Judith did? He was her armor, her strength to lift that heavy sword and cut off the head of the enemy. God worked through Judith. Ask her to intercede for you. Dress yourself in the armor of God as you prepare for your day. There is an inspiring stained glass window in the sanctuary of Our Lady of the Mountains in Jasper of Judith in full armor. The church in its wisdom has given us a powerful weapon. Psalm 114, 12. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for battle, my fingers for war. Is that not what we do when we praise the rosary? We're using our hands and we're using our fingers. The Holy Rosary is our weapon. Padre Pio lived through both world wars and saw the great violence and hatred that existed in the hearts of many people in Europe. 
He had a single weapon. Love the Madonna. Pray the rosary. For her rosary is the weapon against the evils of the world today. I heard a priest who was a chaplain in the military say, my mother wears combat boots, meaning that the rosary is a powerful weapon against the enemy. God trains my hands for battle, my fingers for war. For when we pray the rosary, we believe in Holy Scripture. We're using sacred tradition. We're fulfilling the laws of the church. And we're remembering what Christ has done for us. God sees the future. He knows the now. He knows the call he has placed within each one of us. He knows the challenge of this hour and this trial. He has a great purpose for this time in the church and in the world. This time in which we, it is a privilege to live. He has made us ready and we can be certain that in ways that we have never anticipated, he will use us. For those who know the St. Michael prayer, it's on the table. Let us pray it together. I don't know if they can see it. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us as Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.